its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. While our previous session focused on the need to proactively ensure community resilience in conditions of excess water, this panel will emphasize the economic opportunities provided by proximity to water. But as you might expect, those very opportunities could be endangered if not managed sustainably due to changes in climate as well as broader human interaction with the environment. The Gulf Coast region benefits enormously from the coastal economy. From the seafood industry to tourism, the five states that make up the region have long prospered thanks to various, the various resources and assets provided by their waterways. But various practices could threaten these very industries. For example, overfishing or pollution could harm marine life, thereby harming the very industries that rely on marine life. In a cascade effect, unhealthy marine environments are unable to provide important ecosystem services that offer added resilience to shoreline communities. Sustainable practices are key to ensuring that the various sectors of the coastal economy can continue to thrive and remain profitable in the long term. Because the coastal economy is so wide ranging, we've chosen to focus this panel on two well established sectors with broad relevance within and beyond the Gulf Coast region, including US states like California and Massachusetts, as well as countries throughout South America, Europe and South Asia. We'll be discussing women led innovation in the fisheries and aquaculture sectors, as well as in the tourism industry. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Jen Dianto Kemmerly, vice president of global ocean initiatives, representing Monterey Bay Aquarium seafood watch and Ali Dragazette, founder and CEO of sea going green. So, Jen, you are representing the seafood industry part of this equation. I'm hoping you can kick things off by summarizing the work of Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. And I know you have some slides here that I'm going to queue up. So while you introduce yourself, I'll get those on screen. Thank you, Aubrey, and thank you for the great introduction. Um, it really helps set the stage. I have been with Monterey Bay Aquarium for about 20 years. It's located in California, just south of San Francisco by about two hours. And Monterey is a very active commercial fishing industry right now, made famous for our sardine and squid fishery. We also have a um, very active ground fish fishery as well. So when the Seafood Watch program kicked off about 20 years ago, our intention was really to highlight and feature and create a market demand for those fisheries and aquaculture or fish farming operations that were operating in an environmentally responsible way. And as the program evolved, we started to see the extreme relevance of sustainable fisheries and aquaculture outside of the US and globally. And for those of you who aren't aware, the United States imports about 80% of our seafood. We are also the second top importer worldwide by both volume and value just behind the European Union and after us is Japan and then China. So when our market speaks, um, the communities who produce seafood listen. And um, just to kind of show you on this slide, how many livelihoods rely on a thriving fishing and fish farming industry 
for their socioeconomic well-being. And also importantly is 3.3 billion people worldwide rely on fish as an essential source of nutrition. And consumption is growing worldwide. And seafood is actually the most globally traded commodity. And a lot of that growth right now is being driven by aquaculture or fish farming. I chose all of these pictures on purpose because 90% of the seafood that comes into this country comes from very small scale fishers and farmers. And of those small scale fishers and farmers, about 50% of those industries are comprised of women who do not currently have a lot of decision-making authority. Next slide, please. So what the Seafood Watch program does is we generate a lot of awareness about what is sustainable seafood? Why should you care? All the reasons that Aubrey just went through. And then we go right into working with some of the largest retailers and food service companies in the United States to get them to push down into their supply chains to make sure that where they're sourcing their fisheries um, their, pardon me, their seafood from is coming from sustainable fisheries and aquaculture. And if they're not yet sustainable, how can they help support that work with public private partnerships, which we heard about a little bit in the previous session, but really critical to this is government engagement, that capacity building that funding that we heard about again in the previous presentation. All these components are so critical. Next slide. None of this happens without understanding where we are today. How many fisheries and fish farms worldwide are sustainable? So in the middle of the slide, you'll see some of the work that we do. We rate the environmental performance of fisheries and aquaculture. Where I want to draw your attention to is that 8% that's red rated. That means there's some significant improvements that need to happen. And then all of that gray, we still don't even understand what the environmental performance is due to lack of data. And I also want to point out that we're not working alone in this. Thank goodness. We are working collaboration with over 70 NGOs worldwide who have all committed to support this UN sustainable development goals. Specifically, we're trying to get 75% of that pie chart to be at least, at least environmentally and socially responsible and ultimately sustainable. To the right on that slide, I do want to point out that those those commodities, shrimp, salmon, and crab, those are the big commodities that we import, and you can see most of them are red rated. So what does the Seafood Watch program do? Next slide. We go right back to those business partners, and we get the business partners to really get in touch with the producers of the seafood on the ground in the regions where we're importing most of our seafood from. Blue swimming crab from the Philippines, farm salmon from Chile, farm shrimp from India and Vietnam. And you'll notice that these are all coastal activities and you'll notice that they're all going to be strongly impacted and already being impacted by climate change. So it's a very relevant topic today. A lot of these companies are very interested in ensuring they have a supply of seafood in the future. They do not want to contribute to negative impacts on environments or socioeconomic conditions. So we have a lot of companies engaged and willing to help drive improvements, but we have to connect all the pieces and get all the stakeholders involved. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more, Aubrey, in the Q&A section. So I'll, I'll wait to add more color then. Thank you. Thank you. Really helpful context there. Um, so now I'll turn it over to you, Ali, uh, who will be covering the tourism side of our coastal economy theme here. And I'm wondering if you would briefly introduce us to Sea Going Green. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much for the introduction. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Ali Dragazet, and I'm the founder and CEO of Seagoing Green. I'm also a marine and freshwater biologist who used to work in the tourism industry. And Seagoing Green is a sustainable tourism consultancy. Uh, we founded in 2017, and we're based in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, but we're operating globally. So now I really want you to imagine diving in the Great Barrier Reef. You know, you expect to see this beautiful, lush reef. But unfortunately, um, we're actually on a path that over 75% of the world's coral reefs are projected to die by 2050. And unfortunately, scientists are saying that this number is actually closer to 90%. And as the reefs are dying, the tourism industry is only booming. We're actually set to hit 1.3 uh, billion international tourism arrivals by 2030. And I think this number might be a little higher because of COVID now. And this is why our mission really at Seagoing Green is to alleviate the negative impacts of the tourism industry on the marine environment specifically, uh, which we do by working with clients in the marine tourism industries. So these industries are specifically in the yachting, boating, diving, and river cruise uh, tourism sectors. And our custom-made green transition strategies measure the environmental impact of our clients. For, so we're going from their waste flows to their carbon um, emissions to develop a baseline from which we can really set milestones at the beginning as becoming CO2 neutral, plastic-free, or zero waste. From here, we come up with strategies for them to make changes operationally before we actually partner them off with offsetting projects uh, in the short term to offset the rest by supporting projects uh, for regreening in Kenya, for example, seagrass planting in Puerto Rico or tree planting in the Netherlands. And we also conduct capacity building and training, creating responsible tourism policies and lead green branding campaigns. Our main goal is really to position our clients as best case examples of how sustainability can really benefit people, planet and profit. Additionally, and especially since the start of COVID, we've also been working on some public sector projects, uh, including an array of international sustainable tourism development projects with WWF and the International Develop American uh, Development Bank to enhance tourism competitiveness and build resilience with coastal communities in small island developing states. Aubrey, if you can please queue up the video. So maybe as this is playing, you could tell us a little bit more about the cleanup. When, when was it and what were the impacts? Absolutely. Yeah. So this was in 2018. Uh, so this is really at the, the beginning of Seagoing Green. And it was with a private sector client that's a yachting company that would come down to this area every year. Um, and it was a really successful um, tourism product. But of course, with that came a lot of waste. Uh, so they organized these cleanups every year, actually. And then the year that we were working with them, we decided really let's make it a big campaign, involve local divers um, and get really the, the community involved. And the, yeah, the receipts were really good. That's that's really exciting, and I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into Q&A with both of you. So thank you both for um, the resources that, that you've shared at the onset here. Let me get back to my screen and we can get started. So we have a lot to get through. I hope you both are ready. Uh, Jen, I want to start with you. Um, I'm wondering if you can explain the co-design process that you use to ensure that smallholder seafood producers plus governments, plus business partners are really working cohesively towards locally relevant and effective sustainability improvements in this industry. Thank you, Aubrey. Thanks for the question because it's, it's super important to the success of our work. We've devised a standard based on the UN Food and Agriculture Organization's standards for what responsible, environmentally responsible fisheries and aquaculture looks like. If we walk into a country and say, here, 
just do this. This is where you need to improve. It's just not going to happen. We have to engage all stakeholder groups. And again, we heard this in the previous panel, right? This is the community based approach. So we have spent a significant amount of time identifying stakeholders on the ground from civil society, local NGOs, the actual smallholders themselves, the local finance mechanisms that are holding some of these smallholders in financial relationships and dependencies, really trying to understand cultural and socioeconomic dynamics. Until we understand what's at play on the ground, we really can't design a robust work plan that's going to have staying power. So what we try to do is avoid coming in as a Western nation, a wealthy, the wealthiest, right? Uh, well, uh, Western nation with our business partners to just throw down a, a list of demands. What we really need to do is work with the community on the ground. But another piece that's really critical to success is having the government buy-in to what we're trying to achieve. They're the ones who have to help us set the strong regulations, collect the data, and then having the US companies there to actually buy the product once the improvements are made. So you can see how much of a strategic approach this is to co-design, but we have to get everyone on the same page with the goal. They all sign an MOU, and we are just helping to foster and catalyze those relationships. Thanks, Aubrey. Makes makes perfect sense to me. Ali, I'm going to turn to you now and ask you one of my questions and then follow it up with a related audience question. Um, but to start, in recent years, Seagoing Green's public sector engagement has included working with islands and coastal communities to develop sustainable tourism strategies. Why is it important to engage with the public sector to advance sustainable tourism? Thanks for the question, Aubrey. Absolutely. This is something that we think about all the time, uh, really pivoting from just working with private sector to now with public sector as well, and especially in this space in between. Um, so prior to COVID-19, most of our work really was with clients in the private sector. So our pivot towards the public sector in these types of projects was definitely something really new and innovative for us. Obviously, it comes with a whole slew of new stakeholders, uh, but just as important. So it's definitely true that it's possible to achieve a much broader impact in the public sector than in the private sector, that you can really get in there with the top level stakeholders and lay down frameworks and provide policy recommendation that can inform nationwide or region-wide um, decision-making. So you can really start from the baseline there. Uh, in order for sustainable tourism to really stick amongst the average tourist, we think that changes need to occur on a broad level and to be enforced via legislation and regulations. It can't just be one private sector company leading the change. And then you'll really start seeing more normative changes. Creating normative change to pivot the industry towards sustainability definitely won't happen overnight uh, as much as we hope that it can, uh, but it will happen a lot faster if it's facilitated top down and demanded from the demanded from the bottom up as well, so we can kind of meet in the middle. With that being said, I really do think that public-private partnerships are also incredibly important to bridge gaps and speeding up achieving private sector um, ambitions, especially if we're looking at some sort of funding programs. Private sector always is willing to actually participate in these um, in these kinds of innovative changes, but they're also looking for public sector help as in funding. So along with our public sector work, we also see uh, our work with the private sector is advancing sustainable tourism with the potential to do so on a wide scale 
with the connected world that we live in, we really encourage all of our clients to really use social media and branding as a testament for how sustainability has really changed their businesses for the better. It is our hope that this broader reach will encourage their competition uh, to do the same and that support from their followers and guests will also validate that sustainability is not only desirable, but really the future if they want to stay in business. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. I think this leads nicely to our audience question. This audience member is from West Virginia um, and she's asking what advice would you have for us since we're in our early stages of dealing with the sustainability and tourism nexus? She says we want to take advantage of economic revenue, but we don't want to ruin our special place. Absolutely. Yeah, these kinds of destinations are my personal favorite to work in because you're really starting uh, from yeah ground zero. Um, I would really recommend yeah, looking at baselines. I know that's something that I keep mentioning, but I really do think it's it's the best way forward. Looking at what the carrying capacity of this area is, what kind of tourism products would benefit the local community and the environment, as well as supporting the economy as well. But really looking at, you know, what is the sewage system built for? How many people can actually carry? Um, I'll talk about this a little later on, but an example like in Boracay, the Philippines, for example, it's this beautiful island uh, that had to get shut down because they didn't have a sewage system built to carry all the tourists that they were actually expecting um, and accepting. So I definitely think knowing the, the location's carrying capacity and what kind of tourists, the tourism products that you want to build in will bring in just to make sure that these policies actually um, line up. And also um, starting with a sustainable tourism policy from day one um, is definitely the best way forward. Before I move back over to Jen, maybe this would be a good time for you to chat more about um, how sustainable tourism planning really does um, or should impact decisions related to infrastructure and even workforce development. Absolutely, yeah. So if we're really looking at coastal tourism, I definitely think you need to think about what kind of tourism products are you building? Uh, is that just hotels, you know, that kind of infrastructure? What are the workers that you're going to need uh, for that area? Is there enough local workforce or will you have to import workers? Uh, what kind of food supply will you need? Will you have to import food? Um, so you're really having to start uh, from ground zero and making sure that that whole infrastructure is in place. Uh, yeah, sewage is definitely a really big one that we seen uh, play a really bad part and a lot of tourism capacity um, overloading. So I would definitely start there. Fantastic. Jen, I have a question for you and then we have an audience question for you. So we'll start with mine since uh, I guess because I'm hosting. I don't know. It'll give us time to to think about the audience question for sure. The first question is, can you speak to the role of women in the seafood sector and why it's beneficial to work with local women to improve seafood industry sustainability? Yes, thanks for the question, Aubrey. And if you do it in mind, do you have that slide available that I prepared? I, as I'd mentioned earlier, 50% of the workforce is female but they don't have a lot of decision-making authority. And I'm gonna give you um, examples on a spectrum here. So the first picture you see all the way on the left, that's taken um, in a town or a village in Northern Sri Lanka. And a few years ago, Sri Lanka went through a civil war. It was, it's referred to as the conflict. Most of the women lost their husbands in this conflict they quickly became heads of household and were very reliant on a sustainable and thriving fishery for blue swimming crab. And if you're wondering, do we eat blue swimming crab? Yes, yes we do. Every time you get one of those crab cakes at your restaurant for your appetizer, you're probably eating blue swimming crab or red, red crab from Asia. Um, caught by women and processed by women, 
as the ones shown in this picture, and they had no training. Had they been engaged at the onset and been part of the decision making process, it, already it was a horrific scenario that they were thrown into, but it could have made the transition a lot easier. Today, women in Sri Lanka are being trained on data collection and are being um, becoming more familiar and engaged in the decision making process. And I'm happy to share with you today that. Um, the blue swimming crab from Sri Lanka is currently yellow rated. It is moving towards sustainability because we have such strong engagement. Um, I will now draw your attention to the seafood processing. I think this is what people envision mostly when they think about women in the seafood industry workforce. It is hard work and women are marginalized many, many times in these roles. And we're working with a lot of our business partners to ensure that their supply chains have standards for fair labor practices. Because unfortunately, that's not a, a requirement that a lot of businesses currently push down through their supply chains right now. So that is another important piece of our work. But the last two pictures on this slide to me are the most exciting. When we go into region and we launch these projects that I was talking about earlier, we are engaging women from Indonesia, women from Vietnam, women from Thailand. They're the ones who are conducting the training with the members of the fishing and aquaculture industry. So we're educating them on how to have a voice in their community. And they are also teaching their children and demonstrating what gender female engagement can look like and how fisheries and aquaculture can improve and can thrive. Fantastic. So I do want to jump to um, our audience question because I think it's an excellent question here for you, Jen. But I do before I, I ask the question, want to flag that we are rapidly running out of time in this session. Uh, so let's I, I would really appreciate um, everyone keeping their answers brief moving forward. So this question for you, Jen, is from Lisa. Uh, she says, are there any innovative companies on the West Coast in sustainable fisheries that we can learn from? Yes. So I would actually, for sake of time, and I'll put it in the chat as well, there is an entity called fishchoice.com that lists a lot of the corporations and brands that are working on sourcing sustainable fisheries and aquaculture or supporting sustainable production. And I'd be happy to follow up with you offline and give you more information. Wonderful. We love those connections that building from from these events. Okay, let's uh, move over to you, Ali. I wanted to ask you um, about what I think is a fairly complex question. You know, tourism can simultaneously provide immense benefit and detriment to local communities. I actually think our um, West Virginia attendees question is a really great example of that and the recognition of that. So, um, what is the best way to engage with communities to make sure that the benefit is maximized and the detriment is minimized to put it really bluntly? Absolutely great question. Yeah, and, and super, uh, super complex. But if we're really thinking about marine and coastal tourism, uh, which is really what we specialize in, activities can really be in the form of seagrass planting, mangrove restoration, building oyster habitats, joining beach cleanups, and these types of activities. It really can start really simply. Uh, it's interesting because many participants in the beach cleanups that we've actually hosted um, in the Gulf Coast, so in Florida, have said that taking part in conservation activities at a young age has really impacted them to continue to protect the oceans as adults and make more sustainable choices. Uh, so really these small uh, activities, you'd be surprised at what kind of domino effects they can have later on. 
Studies are also showing that interact interactions with the marine environment increase sustainable behaviors. So a lot of tourists will take what they've actually observed home with them and will maybe actually think twice about um, choosing plastic straws or plastic bags, for example, if they know what the harm can actually be for marine wildlife. Besides this, community relations between locals and tourists will improve as integrated activities allow for these experiences to actually be shared between the two. And with all of this in mind, uh, my biggest advice would really be to think about developing tourism products that are regenerative rather than destructive. So remember that tourists can also support and provide a boost to local NGOs and organizations running these types of programs to keep them going at the community level and also generate job opportunities this way while actually supporting sustainable tourism. Thank you. Um, I have one last question that I want to ask you, Jen. Then we have one more audience question, and then we'll do our wrap up question. Um, so, for you, Jen, my question is, and I feel like I have to choose because I have so many questions. I feel like that happens with all of our panelists. Um, one of Seafood Watch's newest projects examines the use of antibiotics in salmon farming, which is likely to increase as climate change escalates disease outbreaks. Can you just talk a little bit about your goals for this project? Yes, thank you. Most farm salmon right now is red rated because of the chemicals that need to be used to treat disease. And as you mentioned, Aubrey, the disease outbreaks are happening more and more frequently because the water is warming and that is a breeding ground for certain diseases that we have not yet been able to develop vaccines for. Sound familiar? Sorry to bring in the human health connection, but it's about to get worse because the more antibiotics we use, the higher the risk for developing antimicrobial resistance. This means the medicines we need for our own human health to prevent or treat infections, it's not as effective anymore. So as the aquaculture industry grows, we're trying to identify what are some best practices in using antibiotics, but also in aquaculture in general. How can we operate fish farms or aquaculture operations in a way that minimizes exposure or the likelihood of disease? How can we develop vaccines? Monterey Bay Aquarium clearly is not doing this alone. We're working actually very closely with the World Bank and other development agencies and international bodies under the One Health approach, which really calls out you cannot separate people, animals, our environment. We are all interconnected and um, one striking thing that we're finding out right now and hosting expert workshops is we don't even understand the impact of aquaculture um, in exacerbating this issue. We don't even understand the ecological impacts of antibiotics in the marine ecosystem. So there's a lot of urgent work to be done. Well, I'm sure we're all eager to hear about the ongoing work you have going on and, and watch it progress. Um, before we get to our concluding question, I do have a quick note here from Felipe, uh, who asks uh, first congratulates you both for the work that you've been doing and asks very briefly, um, do you ever use the 2030 agenda and its goals as a tool for guiding any action? I'll let both of you respond very quickly. Um, Jen, I know you replied in the chat, so why don't you go first? Sure, thank you for the question and I wrote absolutely. It's so important. There is a sustainable development goal um, SDG 14, which is really calling for sustainable use of marine resources and conservation of marine resources. And if you haven't looked at it, I encourage everyone to really drill down into that knowledge platform. The work that we are doing is directly tying in to some of those targets and indicators. 
end destructive fishing practices, have science based management and illegal fishing address socioeconomic um, issues. So absolutely, I, we didn't get to climate impacts today, but we have to manage fisheries and aquaculture for climate resiliency. We have to protect ecosystems, reefs, kelp forests, not disturb the seabed. So we're not re releasing stored carbon. These are all things that are swirling in our conservation communities minds and we want to do it in partnership with the global community. Well, it looks like I'm excited to to connect you with Felipe offline who looks like there could be opportunities to collaborate, but um, Ali, why don't I let you respond very quickly? Absolutely. Yeah, we also work under the UN SDG goals as well, especially uh, with the 2030 agenda. Um, number 14 is also our main SDG, uh, but we also work under nine, which is industry innovation and infrastructure 11, which is sustainable cities and communities and 12 responsible consumption production and 13 climate action, which we also didn't get to too much today. And 17, of course, which is partnership for the goals. I definitely think it's a great form, uh, framework for collaboration. Uh, it's how we usually uh, start all of our partnerships uh, with our international partners as well. Thank you. And we'll land on our final question of the day, which is once again for both of you. So let's make this a speed round, maybe 30 second parting thoughts here. The question is this, why is it environmentally, socially, and economically beneficial for actors in the seafood and tourism industries to prioritize sustainable practices, especially as these industries contend with the climate crisis? So good luck answering that in 30 seconds, but why don't you take a stab? I will uh, start with you, Jen. I think I tried to hit on it earlier. I mean, they're just all interconnected. And I also think I just put that in the um, the chat because we have a food system summit coming up with the UN. We cannot decouple them. They One only works without the other. If you don't have people bought in and recognizing the value to them of environmental stability and health, they're not going to be playing their role. If the environment is not healthy society cannot function properly there will not be food security there will not be um, civil security there will be issues across the board we have to collectively and holistically work together on all of these issues at the same time that's why we're on this call today i feel like anyone who logged in and registered for this event did so because you care deeply about these issues and it's going to take people like us to get the job done and ali yeah, I absolutely agree, Jen. Um, I also think like our oceans are in biodiversity are under more pressure than ever before. Global warming, overfishing, plastic pollution alone are bringing the health of our biodiversity to a breaking point. So it's really time now to prioritize all of these uh, for our very survival. The environmental health of the Gulf Coast destinations is also really intrinsic to the Gulf Coast state survival as tourism destinations. If we're thinking about domestic and international tourists uh, coming to enjoy blue green waters of the Gulf of Mexico, their exotic beauty and biodiversity and award winning beaches, but this really cannot exist um, if there is no beauty left. So I think uh, it's definitely time to act now. And we're when we're also talking about oil spills, for example, or occurrences of red tide in the Gulf Coast, the state GDPs have suffered. Um, it was really obvious and tourism has obviously been directly impacted then, not to mention the direct costs of environmental disasters on wildlife resources in the surrounding areas. So without drastic changes um, to combat the effects of climate change, there will be more reoccurrences of environmental degradation and fewer chances later on to actually backtrack. 
um, to fix the damage that has already been caused. So this is without even getting into the direct impacts of how rising tides and stronger hurricanes could actually change the entire look of the Gulf Coast. But this is, of course, also directly tied to climate change. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. Government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.